Section 22 of The Essence of Christianity by Ludwig Feuerbach. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Essence of Christianity by Ludwig Feuerbach. Translated from the German by Marian Evans. Chapter 18 The Christian Heaven or personal immortality part one the unwedded and ascetic life is a direct way to the heavenly immortal life for heaven is nothing else than life liberated from the conditions of the species supernatural sexless absolutely subjective life the belief in personal immortality has at its foundation the belief that difference of sex is only an external adjunct of individuality that in himself the individual is a sexless independently complete absolute being but he who belongs to no sex belongs to no species sex is the cord which connects the individuality with the species, and he who belongs to no species, belongs only to himself, is an altogether independent, divine, absolute being. Hence only when the species vanishes from the consciousness is the heavenly life a certainty. He who lives in the consciousness of the species, and consequently of its reality, lives also in the consciousness of the reality of sex. He does not regard it as a mechanically inserted, adventitious stone of stumbling, but as an inherent quality, a chemical constituent of his being. He indeed recognizes himself as a man in the broader sense, but he is at the same time conscious of being rigorously determined by the sexual distinction which penetrates not only bones and marrow, but also his inmost self, the essential mode of his thought, will, and sensation. He, therefore, who lives in the consciousness of the species, who limits and determines his feelings and imagination by the contemplation of real life, of real man, can conceive no life in which the life of the species, and therewith the distinction of sex, is abolished. He regards the sexless individual, the heavenly spirit, as an agreeable figment of the imagination. But just as little as the real man can abstract himself from the distinction of sex, so little can he abstract himself from his moral or spiritual constitution, which indeed is profoundly connected with his natural constitution. Precisely because he lives in the contemplation of the whole, he also lives in the consciousness that he is himself no more than a part, and that he is what he is only by virtue of the conditions which constitute him a member of the whole, or a relative whole. Everyone, therefore, justifiably regards his occupation, his profession, his art or science as the highest, for the mind of man is nothing but the essential mode of his activity. He who is skillful in his profession, in his art, he who fills his post well and is entirely devoted to his calling, 
thinks that calling the highest and best. How can he deny in thought what he emphatically declares in act by joyful devotion of all his powers? If I despise a thing, how can I dedicate to it my time and faculties? If I am compelled to do so in spite of my aversion, my activity is an unhappy one, for I am at war with myself. Work is worship. But how can I worship a servant object? How can I subject myself to it if it does not hold a high place in my mind? In brief, the occupations of men determine their judgment, their mode of thought, their sentiments. And the higher the occupation, the more completely does a man identify himself with it. In general, whatever a man makes the essential aim of his life, he proclaims to be his soul, for it is the principle of motion in him. But through his aim, through the activity in which he realizes this aim, man is not only something for himself, but also something for others, for the general life, the species. He, therefore, who lives in the consciousness of the species as a reality, regards his existence for others, his relation to society, his utility to the public, as that existence which is one with the existence of his own essence, as his immortal existence. He lives with his whole soul, with his whole heart, for humanity. How can he hold in reserve a special existence for himself? How can he separate himself from mankind? How shall he deny in death what he has enforced in life? And in life his faith is this, Nec sibi sed toti genitum secredere mundo. The heavenly life, or what we do not here distinguish from it, personal immortality, is a characteristic doctrine of Christianity. It is certainly in part to be found among the heathen philosophers, but with whom it had only the significance of a subjective conception, because it was not connected with their fundamental view of things. How contradictory, for example, are the expressions of the Stoics on this subject. It was among the Christians that personal immortality first found that principle, whence it follows as a necessary and obvious consequence. The contemplation of the world, of nature, of the race, was always coming athwart the ancients. They distinguished between the principle of life and the living subject, between the soul, the mind, and self. Whereas the Christians abolished the distinction between the soul and person, species and individual, and therefore placed immediately in self what belongs only to the totality of the species, but the immediate unity of the species and individuality is the highest principle, the God of Christianity. In it, the individual has the significance of the absolute being, and the necessary imminent consequence of this principle is personal immortality. Or rather, the belief in personal immortality is perfectly identical with the belief in a personal God i.e., that which expresses the belief in the heavenly immortal life of the person, expresses God also, as he is an object to Christians, namely, 
as absolute, unlimited personality. Unlimited personality is God, but heavenly personality, or the perpetuation of human personality in heaven, is nothing else than personality released from all earthly encumbrances and limitations. The only distinction is that God is heaven spiritualized, while heaven is God materialized, or reduced to the forms of the senses. For what in God is posited only in abstracto is in heaven more an object of the imagination. God is the implicit heaven. Heaven is the explicit God. In the present, God is the kingdom of heaven. In the future, heaven is God. God is the pledge, the as yet abstract presence and existence of heaven, the anticipation, the epitome of heaven. Our own future existence, which, while we are in this world, in this body, is a separate objective existence, is God. God is the idea of the species, which will be first realized, individualized, in the other world. God is the heavenly, pure, free essence, which exists there as heavenly pure beings. The bliss which there unfolds itself is a plentitude of blissful individuals. Thus God is nothing else than the idea or the essence of the absolute, blessed, heavenly life here comprised in an ideal personality. This is clearly enough expressed in the belief that the blessed life is unity with God. Here we are distinguished and separated from God. There the partition falls. Here we are men. There God. Here the Godhead is a monopoly. There it is a common possession. Here it is an abstract unity. There a concrete multiplicity. The only difficulty in the recognition of this is created by the imagination, which, on the one hand, by the conception of the personality of God, on the other, by the conception of the many personalities which it places in a realm ordinarily depicted in the hues of the senses, hides the real unity of the idea. But in truth, there is no distinction between the absolute life which is conceived as God and the absolute life which is conceived as heaven. Save that in heaven we have stretched into length and breadth what in God is concentrated in one point. The belief in the immortality of man is the belief in the divinity of man, and the belief in God is the belief in pure personality, released from all limits, and consequently eo ipso immortal. The distinctions made between the immortal soul and God are either sophistical or imaginative, as when, for example, the bliss of the inhabitants of heaven is again circumscribed by limits and distributed into degrees in order to establish a distinction between God and the dwellers in heaven. 
The identity of the divine and heavenly personality is apparent even in the popular proofs of immortality. If there is not another and better life, God is not just and good. The justice and goodness of God are thus made dependent on the perpetuity of individuals. But without justice and goodness, God is not God. The Godhead, the existence of God, is therefore made dependent on the existence of individuals. If I am not immortal, I believe in no God. He who denies immortality denies God. But that is impossible to me. As surely as there is a God, so surely is there an immortality. God is the certainty of my future felicity. The interest I have in knowing that God is, is one with the interest I have in knowing that I am, that I am immortal. God is my hidden, my assured existence. He is the subjectivity of subjects, the personality of persons. How then should that not belong to persons which belongs to personality? In God I make my future into a present, or rather a verb into a substantive. How should I separate the one from the other? God is the existence corresponding to my wishes and feelings. He is the just one, the good, who fulfills my wishes. Nature, this world, is an existence which contradicts my wishes, my feelings. Here it is not as it ought to be. This world passes away, but God is existence as it ought to be. God fulfills my wishes. This is only a popular personification of the position. God is the fulfiller, i.e. the reality, the fulfillment of my wishes. But heaven is the existence adequate to my wishes, my longing. Thus there is no distinction between God and heaven. God is the power by which man realizes his eternal happiness. God is the absolute personality in which all individual persons have the certainty of their blessedness and immortality. God is to subjectivity the highest, last certainty of its absolute truth and essentiality. The doctrine of immortality is the final doctrine of religion, its testament, in which it declares its last wishes. Here, therefore, it speaks out undisguisedly what it has hitherto suppressed. If elsewhere the religious soul concerns itself with the existence of another being, here it openly considers only its own existence. If elsewhere in religion man makes his existence dependent on the existence of God, he here makes the reality of God dependent on his own reality. And thus, what elsewhere is a primitive, immediate truth to him, is here a derivative, secondary truth. If I am not immortal, God is not God. If there is no immortality, there is no God. A conclusion already drawn by the Apostle Paul. 
If we do not rise again, then Christ is not risen, and all is in vain. Let us eat and drink. It is certainly possible to do away with what is apparently or really objectionable in the popular argumentation by avoiding the inferential form. But this can only be done by making immortality an analytic instead of a synthetic truth, so as to show that the very idea of God as absolute personality or subjectivity is per se the idea of immortality. God is the guarantee of my future existence, because he is already the certainty and the reality of my present existence, my salvation, my trust, my shield from the forces of the external world. Hence I need not expressly deduce immortality, or prove it as a separate truth, for if I have God, I have immortality also. Thus it was with the more profound Christian mystics. To them the idea of immortality was involved in the idea of God. God was their immortal life, God himself their subjective blessedness. He was for them, for their consciousness, what he is in himself, that is, in the essence of religion. Thus it is shown that God is heaven, that the two are identical. It would have been easier to prove the converse, namely, that heaven is the true God of man. As man conceives his heaven, so he conceives his God. The content of his idea of heaven is the content of his idea of God, only that what in God is a mere sketch, a concept, is in heaven depicted and developed in the colors and forms of the senses. Heaven is therefore the key to the deepest mysteries of religion. As heaven is objectively the displayed nature of God, so subjectively it is the most candid declaration of the inmost thoughts and dispositions of religion. For this reason, religions are as varied as are the kingdoms of heaven, and there are as many different kingdoms of heaven as there are characteristic differences among men. The Christians themselves have very heterogeneous conceptions of heaven. The more judicious among them, however, think and say nothing definite about heaven or the future world in general, on the ground that it is inconceivable, that it can only be thought of by us according to the standard of this world, a standard not applicable to the other. All conceptions of heaven here below are, they allege, mere images whereby man represents to himself that future, the nature of which is unknown to him, but the existence of which is certain. It is just so with God. The existence of God, it is said, is certain, but what he is, or how he exists, is inscrutable. But he who speaks thus has already driven the future world out of his head. He still holds it fast, either because he does not think at all about such matters, or because it is still a want of his heart. But, preoccupied with real things, he thrusts it as far as possible out of his sight. He denies with his head what he affirms with his heart 
for it is to deny the future life, to deprive it of the qualities by which alone it is a real and effective object for men. Quality is not distinct from existence. Quality is nothing but real existence. Existence without quality is a chimera, a spectre. Existence is first made known to me by quality. Not existence first and after that quality. The doctrines that God is not to be known or defined, and that the nature of the future life is inscrutable, are therefore not originally religious doctrines. On the contrary, they are the products of irreligion, while still in bondage to religion, or rather hiding itself behind religion. And they are so far for this reason that originally the existence of God is posited only with a definite conception of God, the existence of a future life only a definite conception of that life. Thus, to the Christian, only his own paradise, the paradise which has Christian qualities, is a certainty, not the paradise of the Mahometan or the Elysium of the Greeks. The primary certainty is everywhere quality. Existence follows, of course, when once quality is certain. In the New Testament we find no proofs or general propositions such as, there is a God, there is a heavenly life. We find only qualities of the heavenly life adduced. In heaven they marry not. Naturally, it may be answered, because the existence of God and of heaven is presupposed. But here reflection introduces a distinction of which the religious sentiment knows nothing. Doubtless the existence is presupposed, but only because the quality is itself existence, because to the natural man the real existence, the thing in itself, lies only in the quality which he perceives. Thus, in the passage above cited from the New Testament, the virgin or rather sexless life, is presupposed as the true life, which, however, necessarily becomes a future one, because the actual life contradicts the ideal of the true life. But the certainty of this future life lies only in the certainty of its qualities, as those of the true, highest life, adequate to the ideal. End of section 22.